0: Trust this week was fruitful, the Spirit was working through the ministries that He brought to you uh, as you work this week uh, together in the work of the Lord. There's a few exciting events that have been going on, a few thank yous that I want to share. First off, last week, uh, at last minute's notice, we had a Bible quizzing event here, and I just want to thank the team of folks that got together and set up and uh, helped coordinate and pull all of those little pieces together that needed to happen for that. Uh, Very thankful for that group of volunteers who helped tear down afterwards uh, as well. Also, yesterday we had our Wana Grand Prix. What a super fun time. There was all kinds of, of children and adults up there in Lefevre Hall, and lots of vehicles were going down the track, and it was a great time of fellowship. Uh, and fun and, and there 's some exciting ministry uh, activities that are happening here in the church that you 're going to be hearing about uh, probably within the next few weeks. one of them our our young adult ministry is in the course of, of revamping and kind of reforming and, and looking to move out in, a, in maybe a little bit of a different direction and we 're excited about that. We have a, a prayer ministry team that has been getting together and really um, helping to hone the prayer ministries of the church. How can we be a church that's committed to praying? Praying for each other uh, and praying for the church and what the Lord might be doing in the community. And they're asking that question. Wednesday nights continue to be an amazing night of ministry at Awana here. Uh, Prayer meeting, youth, uh, youth group going on. There's all kinds of activities here on Wednesday night. And finally, an opportunity to serve. As we continue to have many, many children come here every Sunday morning and Wednesday night, there's always opportunities to jump in and get involved in our children's ministry. And I just want to read this quote to you. It's from Charles Spurgeon. We all enjoy a little Charles Spurgeon at 8.15 in the morning on Sunday morning. And so I just want to read it because I think it's really resounding. He said this quote, the best of the church are none too good for this work. Do not think that because you have other service to do, that therefore you should take no interest in this form of holy work, but kindly, according to your opportunities, stand ready to help the little ones and to cheer those whose chief calling is to attend to them. To us, all this message comes. Feed my lambs. To the minister and to all who have any knowledge of the things of God, the commission is given. See to it that you look after the children that are in Christ Jesus. Unquote. And that's from Charles Spurgeon and. As you heard Carl's testimony this morning, uh, a man who was uh, a testimony of the work of that kind of ministry here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. And so I would encourage you, I would implore you, if the Lord has been picking your heart in any way, to be involved. We have a a board right out here in the hallway uh, with opportunities to sign up and to jump in and to get involved in our children's ministries. And so uh, just opportunities are there for you. I'd like to share that with you this morning. We have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and today we begin a new chapter in John. We're we're going into John chapter 5, and really it begins a, a new section of John. And before we get into our text this morning, there's a little bit of a mystery that we need to work through today as a congregation in order to set that mystery up I, I just want to have a little group activity and so if you have your Bibles today uh, if you don't I would encourage you to take one of the red ones in the pew in front of you I'd like you to turn I'd like everybody to turn to John chapter 5 and look down at verse 4 okay, everybody go ahead and turn to John chapter 5 and I want you to look down at verse 4 of John chapter 5. Now we're going to have a little group activity here so when you get there I was wrestling with perhaps doing a sword drill this morning but I thought uh, it maybe be a little early to do a sword drill. I don't want anybody to get hurt and so no sword drills. But as you look down at chapter 5 verse 4 I'd like to, to do a little survey. If you have verse 4 in the context of your Bible right there that you can read would you raise your hand if verse 4 is available right there for you to read? Wow. Okay, very good. All right, slip your hand down. Thank you. Wow, so the question is, what is going on here? What's going on? You know, we might ask that question. It seems to be a little bit of a mystery here. Where is John chapter 5? Really, it's 3b and 4. What has happened here? Is this an optional verse? Is this proof that there's a superior translation out there? How can we work this mystery out. And the answer lies, and I feel like we need to deal with this this morning, because this happens in other places in the Bible. It's not just in John chapter 5 verse 4, but there's a few other places it happens w- as well. And the answer lies in the term that we call textual criticism, right? And so, uh, Dr. David Abbott alluded to it this morning as he was praying. There were men who were moved by the Spirit who wrote the original autographs of each book of the Bible. Now, unfortunately, the Lord in His wisdom hasn't seen fit to give us any of those original autographs. And so what happens is scribes, their jobs were to take from the original autographs and to translate and to make copies of those original autographs. And so what we have today is we have a copy of what was originally given to the writers of the Bible. And, and these translations that we have, these versions that we have, they're written by translation teams that come together, and the goal of a translation team is that we would have the most accurate version of God's Word, the most accurate translation of God's Word. And so we might ask the question, is our translation reliable then? Is it reliable? And I would say resoundingly, yes, it's, it's reliable. The questions that the translations teams ask one another as they come together to look at the text, one of them is this. What does the oldest manuscript copy say? So in other words, the, the idea is the copy that we have that's the oldest copy, that's the closest to the original, what does that copy say? Because that copy would be understood to be the most accurate translation that we have. And ironically enough, when you look at the oldest manuscripts that we have of John chapter 5, verse 3b and 4 are not there. They're missing in the oldest manuscript copies. And, and so uh, the, the translations that we have that include those verses are translations that are interpreted out of a family of manuscripts that we call the Texas Receptus. All right, Now I just want to encourage you, when we deal with this again later on in the book of John, which we will, I'm going to tell you all to go back and listen to this message on this date so we don't have to do this every time. But I think it's important that we cover it this morning. The translations that do not include John 5, 3B, and 4 are translations that are working off of older manuscript copies. And so since the older copies don't include those verses, the the modern, more modern translations that we have often do not include them in the main text as well. But almost every one of your translations has that verse in it. It's just not always in the context. So sometimes you see a little letter there and you've got to look down. You see a footnote or you see a bracket or italics that tells you where to look. So it's included, but it's just not in the primary context. There's a second question that's often asked, and it's this. What, or how much does the verse in question affect the overall meaning of the text? And as you look at that verse in your Bible this morning, you see it's a verse about an angel that was coming down and stirring up the waters. And really, it does not affect in any way, in any significant way, the overall meaning of the text today. The text today is about the power of Jesus and what Jesus is able to do. It, not about an angel and what an angel is able to do. And really, as scholars have come together to work this out, they came to the conclusion that this verse was probably a late addition from a scribe who was trying to describe for us why people would be waiting along the side of a pool to be healed. What they thought was going on, and really it's based on a superstition, that an angel was coming down and stirring up the waters and people were going down and being healed. So because it does not affect any significant meaning in the text, there's another kind of strike against it being included in the primary text that we're looking at this morning. And thirdly, there's this question, is the language used in the verse or text in question consistent with the language that the author uses throughout the rest of the book? And ironically enough, what scholars have discovered with this verse in particular is that the language is very different from the rest of the language that John uses throughout his book. And so this is the third strike against this verse, and probably some of the primary reasons why it's missing Uh, from many of your Bibles in the primary context of the Scripture. And so there's one kind of final and fair question that we might ask. How do we address this? How do we deal with this Uh, when we have verses like this? How do we approach them? And do they say anything uh, broader about the reliability uh, of our Scriptures and what we're holding in our hands? And I would tell you that there is no book in the world that's been under greater scrutiny than the Bible. And it's withstood and proven to be reliable and accurate in that scrutiny over and over again. This table by Josh McDowell just shows you how many copies we have of the original manuscript. There's 5,366 copies of, of old manuscripts that the scribes have translated far more than any other historical document that we have. Entire history books that are read and studied and agreed upon uh, by scholars as being what really happened. Most of those books are written on just a, maybe a few, 30, 40 manuscript copies. We have 5,366 manuscript copies. In fact, scholars have attested that if we were to pile up all of the ancient manuscripts of just the New Testament. This isn't the Old Testament, but just the New Testament. If we were to pile all those up in one pile, we would have a pile that would reach over one mile in height. That's how many manuscript copies we have of the New Testament. And so what can we conclude from those? Well, Dr. Daniel Wallace, he's a noted theologian, and he's an expert in the historical accuracy of the New Testament. He says this, although we have over 300,000, this is a quote, individual variations of the text of the New Testament, this number is very misleading. Most of the differences are completely inconsequential. Spelling errors, inverted phrases, and the like. A side-by-side comparison between the two main text families, the two majority families that we use when we do our translations, show an agreement of full 98% of the time. That's incredible. The Bible is an incredibly reliable document. We believe it to be the inspired and inerrant Word of God, and it absolutely is. Furthermore, Dr. Norman Geisler and William E. Nix have concluded that of the remaining differences, virtually all yield to vigorous textual criticism. This means that our New Testament is 99.5% textually pure. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, There are only about 40 lines in doubt, about 400 words, and none affect any significant doctrine, end quote. And so there's a final thought for us to grab hold of here before we dive into our text this morning, and I alluded to it earlier. There is no book that has withstood in the history of the world more scrutiny and criticism Than the Bible. And as it has been tested, it has proven over and over again its accuracy and veracity, not only in its agreement within itself, but also in its historical reliability, its cultural reliability, and its archaeological reliability. We can rest assured that we have a true, accurate, and complete Word of God that we hold. In our hands today. And we're going to see evidence of that in our text this morning as scholars have actually uh, uncovered through archaeological discovery the actual pool that's in our text this morning. And we're going to see a picture of it uh, as we go to God's Word. And so as we approach our primary text, we will exclude uh, verses 3b and 4 since now we've already spent enough time dealing with them this morning. We have all of our bases covered. So if you have your Bibles, Please take and turn to John chapter 5. This morning we're going to read verses 1, 2, 3a, and then verses 5 to 15. And as you turn there, let's pray. Father God, it is indeed again a privilege for us to gather together on Sunday morning and to go into your word. Father, we find your word to be living, to be active, to be trustworthy. Lord, we know that your spirit works through your word to produce His fruit in our lives. And so, Lord, we do this on Sunday morning as a corporate activity. This isn't just one person, Lord. It's all of us opening Your Word together because we know that You are powerful to use it to accomplish Your purposes and Your plans for our lives. I pray as we leave here this morning, we would go here changed. We would go here with a greater knowledge of You and that knowledge might lead us to love You and to love others better than we are Today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the sabbath but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So we have in our text this morning this miracle of Jesus healing this lame man. Now we said that chapters 1 through 4 if we had to sum them up in one sentence it was that Jesus it was the supremacy of Jesus the word That was how we summed up chapters 1 through 4. To sum up chapter 5, we might say that chapter 5 is teaching us that Jesus is equal with God. If you want to write that down, we're going to sum up chapter 5. Over the next few weeks, the primary thrust of this text is that Jesus is equal with God with God. Now we're uncertain about what festival this is. There were many festivals going on in the book of John. John has a festival cycle and scholars are unsure as to what festival this is. But Jesus had been in Capernaum, we remember there at the top of the raisin, and now he had worked his way all the way to Jerusalem and he's in Jerusalem now. And as we think about Jerusalem, it's important for us to understand the dimensions of the city because it's a city that's so important to the life of Jesus. What What did Jerusalem look like as a city? And and I think one of the best ways for us as a body of Christ today to understand the size of Jerusalem is many of us are familiar with college campuses, all right? So if you look at this picture up here, you can see uh, kind of an outline of the city of Jerusalem. And if you think about the size of Jerusalem, consider Jerusalem the size of a small college campus. This city. And so this is where Jesus is ministering in, and he's at this pool of Bethesda. And the word literally means house of mercy or flowing waters. And, and so here is an excavational picture of a dig that they did. Uh, this is the pool at Bethesda uh, in Jerusalem. They found it, they've discovered it. And to give you an idea of where it sat, and what it looked like, there's another image right here and it talks about the colonnades and the colonnades are, the, are those uh, kind of tall columns that you see around the inside and that is where the folks would lay and wait for the water to be stirred up before they would go down to be healed. And so if you look down at verse 5, one man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had been there a long time and he said, Do you want to be healed? You want to be healed, and remember, we we come to the to the scriptures and we approach relationships with the understanding that there are no chance encounters. This is not a chance encounter here. Jesus has chosen for a purpose this particular man. He's been lame. He he's been unable to to get to the pool for some thirty eight years. It's a long time. Feeble and weak, and Jesus sees this man and he knows him. Remember uh, when when it was uh, in the in, I think it was John chapter 1, where it said Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what was in man, so he knows this man, he he knows his infirmities and the circumstances that this man is living under. And he asks a simple question, friends, full of anticipation for the rest of the text. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And we remember from last week in the story of how Jesus brought the, the official's son from the brink of death to life with just a word that Jesus is able to do it. He's able to heal this man if he wants to. But the man's response, friends, it's, it might be telling of what we come to find about his character. Now, if you put yourself in his shoes, 38 years, you're laying, unable to move, and a man walks up and asks if you want to be healed. Don't you think your response would be a resounding, of course, yes. But that's that's not how this man responds. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And why I'm going down, another steps down before me. His answer, friends, it's defensive. It's a defensive answer. Instead of responding with a resounding yes, he begins to make excuses as to why he hasn't been able to be healed yet. If I could just get to the water, the water would work. It would do it. It would be able to heal me. And you know this word answer there in verse 7, where it says the sick sick man answered him, really it's a word for like giving a defense. And it occurs three times in our passage this morning. This is the first defense The second defense we see is when the Pharisees accuse him of breaking the Sabbath law, and he has to give a defense. And the third defense we see is when the Pharisees question Jesus later on in our text. But Jesus, he's not asking this man to give a defense of why he hasn't yet been healed. That's not what he's asking him. He's simply asking, do you want to be healed? Friends, the, the man's faith, it was misplaced. You see, he believed that the pool had the power to heal him. If I could just get down to the water, his faith was not resting in the right place. And and maybe we do this sometimes in our life, friends. We might be guilty of this. If if I could just catch that break. You know, we see all, all the time people, they win the lottery. And we think, oh man, if I could just, you know, wake up one morning and find a million dollars under my pillow, how different my life might look. Right? Maybe if my circumstances could just change, if I, if I just didn't have to deal with, with this anymore, if I just had a little bit more time, I could do this. If, if this person or that person in my life was just a little easier to live, live with, if my boss was just a little bit more understanding, Jesus, if I could just get down to the water, then I could be healed. But friends, as we know, as we've come across multiple times now in this book, it doesn't depend... On this man. It doesn't depend on a favor from a friend carrying him down to the water. And it doesn't even depend, friends, on the nature of the water. His opportunity to be healed is standing in front of him. And it's totally dependent on the power of Jesus. You know, I I had a thought as I was looking at this text this week. Why this man? I mean, look at the enormous size of that pool and the columns all around it. How many hundreds of people could have been laying around that pool waiting for healing? Why just this man? And you know, as I reflected on it, as I thought on it, I thought the answer to that question is really another reality that points to the reality that Jesus is equal with God. Right? Do you remember God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on. On whom I have compassion. And that verse was reiterated again in Romans chapter 9. And so here we see Jesus acting as we should expect Him to. He's acting as God. It's, 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 it's up to His purpose and His plan. It's according to His design that He picked this man. It's not up to us, friends. The Lord chooses for His glory and His purposes who He will show His mercy And compassion too. And here at the waters of mercy. At the pool of Bethesda. The man who had been lame for 38 years. Would soon experience the mercy of Jesus. And with two words. Jesus was able to change this man's life forever. Look down at verse 8. Verse 8. Jesus says to him. Get up. Two words. Take up your bed. And walk. And at once. The man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. And so this phrase, get up, it might take us, fast forward us to the time of Lazarus when Jesus said, come forth. Just the power of his word was enough to heal this man. And the commands of the miracle are clear and concise. There's, There's three commands, and then there's three responses, right? Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the three responses right in our text, one, he was healed, two, he took up his bed, And three, he walked. The healing is immediate, friends, and it's complete. This is pretty cut and dry. This is a miraculous healing at a pool. But unfortunately, there's a conflict that's brewing. And it's a conflict. The conflict that we see here, friends, would be the conflict that follows Jesus throughout the rest of his earthly ministry. And you know, it's interesting. The miracles that Jesus often performs in the Gospels are not always followed by celebration. In fact, many times they're followed by conflict and hostility. And especially in this section of John. And I wonder, friends, if we might expect the same to be true in our lives. Sometimes when God has a great victory in our lives and does something incredible, maybe even miraculous, it's not always followed by celebration and people being excited and happy for us. Sometimes it's followed by conflict and hostility. Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath. Then he commanded him to do something which according to the religious Jewish leaders would have violated the Sabbath law in their minds. Look at the transitional phrase at the end of verse 9. At the very end of verse 9 there's this transitional phrase that sets up the rest of the conflict. Now that day was the Sabbath. The Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, in the Old Testament, friends, it was given out of love. It was a way that, that God showed his love uh, to mankind by giving his law. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. But the religious leaders had turned this idea of Sabbath into a communal parade of inactivity. That's what it was. I mean, it was, it was, it was just like, uh, I mean, look at this. This is, um, this is right out of uh, the Mishnah. Okay, and, and 39 different categories for work here. And I'm not going to read them all. You can just take a look up there. 39 different categories for work. And you know, you can read through that whole list of how they defined work and what work was on the Sabbath. And guess what you won't see there? A man carrying his bed. And so what does that tell you? That on top of these 39 laws, the religious leaders and the Pharisees had written even more. And there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And friends, they were a burden on the people. They were burdensome. They had laid them down and and made things cumbersome. And the problem was in in the way that the religious leaders fundamentally viewed and understood the law of the Lord. And and Jesus tried multiple times to correct their misguided views, but to no avail. Friends, the law was made for man. Man was not made for the law. God created man first. Then later, he gave the law. And the religious leaders, they saw the law as something that they had to hold up over the people to keep the people from violating the holiness of God. But what they missed is that God gave the law as an act of love. It was given in love to preserve, to protect, and to sanctify the people of God. And the religious leaders, they had flipped this around. They believed that the people, by following the law, somehow were able to preserve and protect the holiness of God. And so that's why they were so offended when people broke the law. Because they thought that by breaking the law, they were somehow affecting the holiness of God, but God doesn't need man, friends, to preserve and protect his holiness. He's perfectly capable of doing this on his own. The law is a testimony of God's love and provision for mankind. So we might ask the question this morning, how is that true? And first, friends, it shows us that God loved us enough to teach us how He desires to be worshipped and honored. If we just look at the first three of the Ten Commandments, have no other gods, don't misuse my name, remember the Sabbath day and set it aside. We might sum these first three up by saying, honor God alone, by glorifying His name and resting in Him. You see, God loved us enough that He wanted to teach us how He desired to be honored and worshipped. And secondly, the law is also a testament of God's love and provision because God loved us so much that He not only wanted us to know how to honor and worship Him, but He also wanted us to know how we could love and support one another as He has called us into community together. First Israel, friends, then the church. The law, then, is a testimony of God's desire for us to be living in community with one another. We're not to be isolationists. Look at the seven final commandments of the last ten. How do we live in community together and honor God? They answer that question. How do we live in community together and honor God? Commandments 4 through 10. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill each other. That's a really good thing not to do. Don't commit adultery. Don't take things that don't belong to you. If we want to live together and honor God, we shouldn't take one another's belongings Let's not lie anymore. Don't envy your neighbors, your neighbor's wife. And, and so the first one there, uh, commandment nine, is speaking specifically of your neighbor's relationships, specifically his wife, but other relationships as well. Don't envy those. And, and, and ten is speaking specifically of your neighbor's belongings. Don't envy those either. If your neighbor's got a nice tractor, don't envy it. Southern Lancaster County, right? We can't have tractor envy. It's this is be breaking the 10th commandment. And so Jesus took all 10 of these, plus all of the other laws in the Old Testament, and what did he do? He summed them up in two simple statements. Love the Lord your God with all of your being, and love your neighbor with all as yourselves. And the Pharisees had taken it upon themselves to take those ten commands and the laws found regarding worship in Leviticus and to build out of them hundreds and hundreds of man-made regulations. The yoke of the Pharisees was heavy and burdensome. But friends, what did Jesus say about his yoke? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, and the Pharisees, they're guilty of putting religious tradition and legalism above love and compassion. And here's the reality of the situation, friends. Jesus had greater authority over the acceptable practice of the Sabbath than the Pharisees. Isn't it ironic that the Pharisees are correcting Jesus about how the Sabbath law is to be applied and practiced? The Pharisees are staring into the face of God-made flesh trying to condemn him for the application of the law which he created for their good and his glory. And as we theme out this chapter again, friends, Jesus being equal with God, he had greater authority to interpret and apply the law than the Jewish people that it was given to. Just look at what he says in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. Uh, I'm actually going to read it. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Friends, Jesus was more closely following the intended purpose for the Sabbath than the religious leaders who were seeking to condemn and persecute him for his behavior. And the hypocrisy here is clear and evident, right? It's not okay for one man to heal another on the Sabbath, but somehow it was okay to seek and condemn and persecute a man for healing someone on the Sabbath. It makes no sense. The Pharisees were way out of line. Look down at verse 10 again of John chapter 5. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But so what does he do? He blames Jesus. He doesn't take responsibility. You know, this man, he's very different than the man that we see in the coming chapter who was healed. You remember how thankful that man was? We're going to see it. This man is very different. He doesn't seem to be very thankful. In fact, he doesn't even know the identity of his healer. Now, if you're laying lame by a pool for 38 years and a man comes and he offers for you to be healed and you give him an excuse and he still heals you, don't you think you'd want to take a moment to get to know who he was? to find out his name, maybe even want to follow him around a little bit, maybe have a desire to be one of his disciples, to go with him, and there's none of that in this text. In fact, he he displays what we call in our home BCD behavior. We say to our children often that there is no BCD behavior in our home, and we actually tell our football players this too. So what's BCD behavior? We don't blame, we don't complain, and we don't defend. And we're not going to do those three things. And this man, he's guilty of a lot of those here in this text. And and right now, he's, he's blaming Jesus. Well, that guy, he told me to do it. He told me to do it. I mean, it's like a conversation we might have with our children at home. And you know, it's interesting here, in the minds of the religious leaders, the one who was commanding people to break the Sabbath is far more dangerous than the man who is actually breaking it. And so their concern now isn't about this man who had been healed. Their concern now turns to Jesus. The man has escaped the wrath of the Jewish leaders. He's given them a scapegoat on which to pin his criminal activity of Sabbath healing. And as often was the habit Jesus had withdrawn, so to not create a scene or to draw undue attention to himself. But look at what happens in 14. Sometime later, there's this divine follow-up that Jesus has with this man in the temple. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus finds the man in the temple, he reminds him of his new physical state, but then he confronts him with an issue that's crippling his spiritual state. You see, physically, this man is whole now. He's well, he's doing great, he's excited, he's in the temple, but spiritually, there's something that's crippling him. He's continued to sin. You see, the verb that's used here, friends, it's in the present imperative, which actually suggests that even after this man was healed, he had continued on in sinful activity. And so Jesus is finding him in the temple, knowing who he was, knowing that he had continued on in sin, and he's saying, hey, stop sinning so that something worse might not happen to you. And now, when, when I read that uh, this week, I thought, now what could possibly be worse than being lame for 38 years next to a pool? And friend, what, what, what Jesus is alluding to here, what, what could be worse? Eternity in hell, separated from Jesus. Stop sinning so that that nothing worse might happen to you. And Friends, we don't know why this man was suffering. Could have been because of maybe some sin that he had done. We're not sure maybe of of something that that he had did in his past. And we don't always know the reasons that we suffer here on earth. We're we're not always uh, made aware of the reasons why we face sickness and why we face infirmities. But what we do know, friends, what is clear, is how Jesus desires for us to respond in our suffering. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16-18. to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, all of us, friends, are going to die. We're all wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. So This is one of my favorite verses to share with those who are going through affliction. I think it's so powerful, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles, everything here, friends, is momentary, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So where do we fix our eyes? We fix our eyes not what is, not what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Jesus goes to this man and he reminds him, Look, you are well, you're healed, Go. Don't don't sin anymore. Stop sinning. And how does the man respond? Does he go away like the woman who was caught in adultery, thankful? Does he go away like the man who who was blind, who Jesus brought sight to, thankful? What does the text say that he does in verse 15? There's no thankfulness here. There's no rejoicing. The entire context of this chapter, uh, of these 18 verses, is free of any kind of celebration of this man. He's not celebratory for what Jesus has done in verse 15 the first action after this confrontation with Jesus, he goes and he tells the Jews, it was that guy who healed me. That guy did it. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The man leaves the temple and he goes and he tattles on Jesus. It was Jesus. And as the Pharisees, they sought to persecute Jesus on this charge. And And we love the stance that Jesus takes. Jesus is going to take a stand on the authority of His Father and on His own authority. Friends, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord over the law. He's Lord over the temple. He's Lord over all of worship. And the Pharisees were about to have some heaping coals tossed on their laps. Surely what comes next lays the foundation for the reason that they would seek to have Jesus put to death. What you see in the next verse, friends, is the foundation for the primary charge that was brought forth against Jesus in John chapter 19, that he claimed equality with God. He claimed equality with God. We have seen this man who was healed give his defense, and now the Jews begin questioning Jesus, and Jesus is going to give a defense that would stir their hatred towards him for the rest of his earthly ministry. Look down at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. I am working. Jesus knew right where to poke. The Jews believed that God rested on the seventh day, yet that He was somehow able to continually uphold the universe without breaking Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying to them in this sentence is that my father is at work and now I am working with slash for him. And by saying this, Jesus is inferring that he is equal to and he is equal authority with the father. That somehow, just like God was unable to uphold the Sabbath without breaking it, never needing to take a rest, so too Jesus was now able to do that very thing while he was on earth. That he was able to heal blind men, lame men. That he was able to work on the Sabbath in a way that the Pharisees would have considered breaking the law because Jesus had equal authority with God the Father. And finally, in verse 18, and we'll continue to unpack this concept next week as we dive deeper into Jesus' equality with God. But verse 18 tells us why the Jews were seeking to kill him. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we will continue to unpack what that looks like next week as we go deeper into John chapter 5. And the question that we ask, friends, at the end of all of our messages is how should our lives look in light of these realities? And you know, um, have you ever had a shower thought Some people have mower thoughts, some people have shower thoughts. You know, uh, there was a shower thought that hit me a few days ago, um, very similar to a mower thought. Our best thinking is often done in the mower, right? Um, and, And you know, as I thought about this question that we ask on Sunday, I thought about the way that we apply God's Word in our lives. And I was thinking about how the application of God's Word should be tied and connected to the fruit of the Spirit, shouldn't it? Because the Spirit works through the Word of God to produce fruit in our life. And so whenever we're looking to apply the Scriptures at the end of our text, or even throughout our text, we should ask the question, how does this text cause us to be more loving? How does this text cause us to be more gentle? How does this text cause us to be more kind? How might the Spirit work through this text to cause us to be more thankful? And that's the question I landed upon this week, friends. I looked at this man who was healed, unable to heal himself, physically helpless, and Jesus chooses to heal him, and yet what do we see? He's not very thankful. He's not very thankful. And the question that came to mind is, are we thankful both for what Jesus did and who Jesus is? And do our lives reflect this thankfulness is the spirit of God working through his word to produce this thankfulness in us and what I find friends is that when our hearts and our lives are reflecting thankfulness we're so much quicker to forgive we're so much quicker to love we're so much quicker to understand and to seek to understand other people we're so much quicker to bear one another's burdens because we're so thankful for what the Lord has done for us So my my challenge and my question to us this morning is that maybe we wouldn't be like the man next to the pool. Maybe we would be thankful for the reality that Jesus has called us, that He's chosen to heal us, to make us one of His own, and that we can call Him our Father. Team, would you come this morning and lead us in our final hymn, I Surrender All. My prayer as we go today, friends, would be that we might live out of that great gratitude that Jesus has called us, he's chosen us, he's revealed himself to us, and by his mercy and by his compassion, he's saved us, he's cleaned us up, and he's made us whole and made us well. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time.